are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. We don't do this all the time, but I want to start, uh, before I preach, I just want us to, to read God's Word together. And when I say together, I mean I'm going to read it, and I want you to follow along. It's not trying to do it all out loud, although that's good sometimes too. It should be on the screen. I want you to hear this. This is the Word of the Lord. Hebrews 12, verse 28 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let me pray for us. Father, we're thankful. That is true, that you will never leave us or forsake us. We pray for this time, God, as we turn our attention to your word. I pray that you would, by the power of your spirit, speak to us through the pages of scripture. That's what we need, whether we realize it or not, God, we need to hear from you. And so we pray that you would speak for every man, woman, child in the room. God, would you give us what we need? Encourage us, challenge us. Remind us of the truth of the gospel, that we are loved by you, despite the fact this is not what we deserve, but because of who Jesus is. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, as you have a seat, let me say good morning. If you are a guest with us, we are glad that you are here. If we haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Clint, and I'm one of the pastors on staff, and I'm thankful that we have this opportunity to open God's word together. If you have a Bible with you, and you haven't yet, will you turn to the passage that we just read? We're going to spend our time in Hebrews 13, those first six verses, uh, because we have for 16 weeks now been working our way through this New Testament book of Hebrews. And what we just read at the end of chapter 12, the beginning of 13, is the final chapter of this letter. And we've said several times in this series that it's really more of a sermon than it is a letter. And I think one of the ways that we can know that, if you were here last week, this will make sense. If you weren't, this won't, but stick with me. Um, one of the ways we know this is a sermon is because when I read through this passage, Hebrews 13, 1 to 6 this week, studying for it, it reminded me of my sermon last week because I, we had a lot to cover last week. And I spent so much time explaining what the word says that we really ran out of time uh, to apply what it means to our lives. And that's what this feels like. This feels like the, the author of Hebrews takes 12 chapters to explain theology. Jesus is better. The beauty and the truth of the majesty and the superiority of Jesus. Twelve chapters, he's better than the prophets, he's better than angels, better than Moses, better than Joshua, he's better uh, than the tabernacle, he is the mediator of a new and better covenant, right? On and on and on, twelve chapters on repeat, and then you get to chapter 13, and it's the application, and it feels like, and we just read it here, this sermon's going to feel this way as well, it feels like just a shotgun approach, like he's out of time and he's just giving it out there, you know, like if I were suddenly dying or something and my son came to me and it's like you just start throwing things out you're like take care of your mama be kind to your you know your brother and and love on your sister or whatever like you're just throwing things out there that's what this feels like um and so i want us to look at these five things 
is these five massive categories of things that should be true about us if we're going to follow after Jesus with our lives. And we're going to look at that in just a moment. I want to make sure we don't miss something before we look at those five. Just a few minutes ago, we celebrated baptisms. And like Will said, these folks got in the water. The purpose there, Jesus gives us this ordinance, is that they are making a public declaration, a profession of faith that Jesus is who the Bible says he is. Essentially, they're saying, I believe that Jesus is better. And when they did that, they were asked two sets of questions, okay? The first set of questions is about Jesus's identity. It went something like this. Do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? That he came to earth, that he lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross for your sins, and on the third day he rose again? And they say, I do. Yes, they, they confess faith that that is who Jesus is. If that's the case, then they get a second set of questions. And this is about an intent and a desire to follow Jesus and to be obedient with him with their lives. So if they say yes to who Jesus is, then they'll say, the question is then, will you submit your life to follow him? Will you do what he says for you to do? Will you go where he says for you to go? And the reason why I mention that now is because I want you to see that this, not just in this text, but the, the baptisms in front of the church isn't just for the folks getting baptized. It's for us as well. And, and those two sets of questions are, are inextricably linked, right? Here's what I mean. If Jesus is who the Bible says he is, if he is the all-knowing, all-powerful, eternal son of God, not only is that who he is, if he has done what Philippians 2 says he's done, it should be on the screen, if he, the all-knowing, all-powerful, eternal son of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped or to be clinged to, but rather, it says he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He, the all-powerful, all-knowing, eternal son of God, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If that's who Jesus is, and you say that you believe that, then the only appropriate response is I will follow him with my life. That's the only appropriate response. It's I will do what he says I should do. I will go where he says I should go. These two questions, sets of questions are linked. And like we said for the past couple of weeks, Jesus is either king of your life or he's not. And there is no in between. And let me just say this. If you're wrestling with that first question, if you just aren't sure if Jesus is who the Bible says he is. I had a conversation with a guy this week and we were talking about this. He asked me what I did and I told him. And so that means that I'm gonna have a conversation with him about Jesus and I asked him what he believed and he said, he just couldn't quite wrap his mind around the reality that, that Jesus could be that because of some of the unbelievably difficult things that he's been walking through in this season and in his life. He couldn't get there. And maybe that's you, right? Maybe you're not sure if Jesus is who the Bible says he is, or maybe you can, you do believe that that's who he is, but you just can't quite believe that his death on the cross counts for you, that God would welcome you to himself despite the fact that that's the farthest thing from what you deserve because of his sacrifice on your behalf. Maybe you can't quite believe that. If that's you, we are glad you're here. You are welcome here. We are not afraid of your questions, not afraid of your doubts, and neither is God. That's the whole point the book of Hebrews is written, is to convince them. Twelve chapters on repeat, Jesus is better. I know it's hard. Despite the cost, he's worth it, so don't give up, right? That's the whole point of Hebrews. So if you're here wrestling with that first question, you're free to do so. But if your answer to that question is yes, I believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the one who was and is and is to come. He is the one who forgives sin and loves sinners, the one who has forever defeated death and hell through his perfect life in an empty tomb. The one who the Bible says right now is at the right hand of God the Father, ruling and reigning in complete sovereign control over every square inch of creation. If, if you say that's who he is, 
right? Then the only appropriate response is, I will follow him. I will follow him with my life. And so we get 12 chapters of Jesus is better and essentially 12 chapters of do you believe that Jesus Christ is who the Bible says he is? And then the conversation shifts to the second question now where he says this, will you follow him? Will you follow him? Will you do what he says for you to do? And will you go where he says you should go? And like I said, the author of Hebrews wastes no time, right? In five verses, he gives five massive categories of things that should be true about us if we're following Jesus. And when I read through them, it probably feels like that shotgun approach. It's actually challenging to preach a sermon on these five things because it feels like he's just grabbed this thing and this thing and this thing and this thing. And they could all honestly be their own sermon series. At minimum, they could all be their own sermon, and we're going to take a different approach to that. But I'm going to walk through these, and then hopefully at the end there we'll see how they all connect. Let's look at the first one in verse 1. These are things that should be true about us if we answer yes to that first question. And where they're not true about us, we should be growing in them. Verse 1, he says, let brotherly love continue. So the first thing that should be true about us if we say yes to that question, we're following Jesus with our lives, is we should have in our life a love for one another. A love for one another. This is like what Jesus says to his disciples in John 13. He says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I loved you. You also are to love one another, and by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So we know that we should be loving other people, but what this is talking about is specifically the love that should exist within the local body of believers, within a local church. And Jesus says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, meaning one of the primary ways, maybe the primary way that sets Christians, or should rather, set Christians apart from the world around them is by the way that we love each other, by the the love that's present in our relationships that is not present, does not exist anywhere else. He says, let brotherly love continue. This phrase, brotherly love, uh, in the Greek, it's one word. It's the word Philadelphia, right? Maybe that sounds familiar to you. Uh, In the original language, it's two words pushed together. The first part of that word means to love or to have a great affection for. The second part of that word means brother, or more literally, it means from the same womb. This is why the city of Philadelphia is called the city of what? Brotherly love. That's right. Go Braves. Um, (laughs) The point here, the point here in the text, though, is not just that love for one another is an activity that Christians should be doing. It's not saying this should be part of of our activity or what we should be doing. The the point is about the reality that we've been given a new identity. And church, in the Christian life, identity always comes before activity. Identity always comes before activity. We've seen this a ton in the past several weeks in the book of Hebrews. That is, we draw near to God through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. We are, through faith in God the Son... We are not only forgiven of our sins, but through faith in God the Son, we are reconciled to God the Father. And as we do that, we're given this new identity that we are now sons and daughters of God. And this point here is if we are given this new identity through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, reconciled to him, sons and daughters, if we are sons and daughters of God, then we must also be what? Brothers and sisters to one another. And so he says, let brotherly love continue continue. Oftentimes, most of the time in the New Testament, that word continues translated abide. He says it means to dwell or to remain. He says let it remain, which means not only should it be present in our lives, but it should should be continually growing in that, that we should be growing in our affection for and the, the, the visible attributes of love within the body of Christ. That's the first thing. 
love for one another. Again, this is going to feel all over the place. Look at the second thing, verse 2. He says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So the second thing that should be present in our lives as followers of Christ is hospitality to strangers. Just like the, uh, the first one in verse 1, this phrase, hospitality to strangers, or show hospitality to strangers, is one word in the original language. And I'm going to mention this because there's a, there's a play on words that doesn't show up in the English. It, it's one word in the original language, Philadelphia, and the, the word that's translated show hospitality to strangers. The first part of both of those words is the same, to love, to have an affection for. But instead of Adelphos, which is where we get Philadelphia, which means brother at the end, in, in verse 2, it's the word xenos, which is, it means stranger. It's where we get the term, if you've heard it, xenophobia which is a fear of strangers or a fear of people who are different than us. And I mention that because, again, there's this play on words here. And what he's doing is he's drawing us back to verse 1, and he's showing us how the activity in the Christian life flows from the identity that we're given in Christ. Not We don't perform in order to become. He's given us this identity, and then we act out of that. And so he says, not only should we be marked by a love for one another inside the church, but he says we should be marked by hospitality shown toward those outside the church. And I almost, in this second point, I almost use a different word than hospitality, but I decided to go with hospitality because that's what the Bible uses. But the reason why I wanted to use a different word is because when I say hospitality, the vast majority of us think HGTV, right? We think Chip and Joanna Gaines. That's what we think. And I know that you're, you've already ordered some things from Amazon and your, your table is going to look awesome for Thanksgiving. Okay, that's great. Um, hospitality in the Bible doesn't... Like, that is included in it, perhaps, but biblical hospitality is different, right? Southern hospitality and biblical hospitality are different. When we hear hospitality, we think someone invited, invited you to their house for dinner, or you're going to go over after, for lunch after church, and, and again, that could be what's happening here and what's in view here, but in the first century, hospitality involved a much more invasive offer, especially when he said, show hospitality to strangers. Here's what's going on. In the first century, there weren't hotels a bunch. There weren't a lot of hotels, very few, and folks didn't have the money to do that. So when you were to travel, if you didn't know somebody in the town where you were staying or where you were going, um, then you would have to rely on the hospitality from strangers in order to stay, right? Because the, the hotels that did exist were very expensive, and they, the, the type of uh, activities, I'm trying to keep this G-rated, the type of activities that would happen there, you probably didn't want to participate them participate in them, right? And if you did, then you went there. But otherwise, you wanted to stay with strangers. So again, show hospitality to strangers means opening your home to someone you've never met and doesn't come with a recommendation and put no security deposit, and you're allowing them safe stay in your home. Again, it's opening our, our lives, opening our homes, using our resources to show hospitality to others, um, even those who are different than us. Remember, he's connecting this activity in the Christian life of showing hospitality to strangers to the identity that's been given to us in Christ. So the idea here is that we take time to notice the people that's around us, that are around us, and we willingly welcome them and invite them into our space to show them the love of Christ. Right? Again, this, doesn't, this isn't talking about just people you haven't met but you have everything in common with. This is talking about people who are different than you. People who you can't believe believe what they believe. If that was too many beliefs, what I'm saying is they think different than you. They vote different than you. They look different than you. They act different than you. And the Bible says you show hospitality to them. You don't avoid them. 
You don't invite them in your house in order to convince them how wrong they are about the things they believe. You actually show hospitality to them, open your space to them, invite them in with the love of Christ, not because they deserve it, but because your activity as a Christian flows from your identity in Christ. And what's true about us in Christ church is that you and I were enemies of God, but Jesus saw us and he had mercy on us and he crossed boundaries for us and he invited us into his space so that he could offer us the love of the Father. So let me ask you this church, what would happen if in this city of Savannah, Ordinary followers of Christ, like you and me, if we actually took the time to notice people? And, and what if we weren't so busy operating our schedules with literally zero margin that we could actually listen to God and pay attention to what he might want to be doing through our lives and how he might want to bless others? What might God do in this city? I had a conversation with the guy after the first service, and he was saying that that really started resonating with him. He was thinking about how he, he's always thinking about his next task. It doesn't matter who's around. Right? We, we don't even see people, and this is so countercultural where it says you not just notice strangers, but you show hospitality to them. Right? How might God transform this city? Look at the reason he gives in verse 2 for why we should do this. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have what? Entertained angels. Right? So it sounds like what he's saying is the reason why you should show hospitality to strangers is because you never know you might have an angel in your house, right? That's what it sounds like. And that could be what the Bible's saying. I don't think it is. Let me try to explain. Most theologians agree that this is a reference back to Genesis 18, okay? And in Genesis 18, there's Abraham. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament, there's Father Abraham who had many sons. Well, in chapter 18, he, ha he didn't have any sons yet, all right? This is who this is. And these three men in Genesis 18 show up to Abraham, and two of them are angels, we find out. One of them um, is most likely a pre-incarnate Christ before he takes on, uh, becomes a man in, in the form of Jesus of Nazareth. But the, the point of the passage in Genesis 18 is that when Abraham sees him coming, he doesn't hide out behind and be like, who's that? He goes out to them, he welcomes them, he runs and greets them, he brings them water to wash up and wash their feet, he gives them an appetizer while they wait, kills a calf, has Sarah make cakes, like he goes above and beyond to provide this meal for them. And then as they finish and after they've rested, he escorts them down the road as they leave, right? So he goes above and beyond. And it seems like Hebrews 13 is saying, hey, show hospitality to a stranger because you never know there might be an angel. But I don't think that's why he picks up the theme of Genesis 18 here when he says show hospitality to strangers. I think he's saying, hey, like Abraham, you live your life cultivating an open life cultivating this open home to invite people into the love of Christ. Again, we're supposed to live our lives from the identity that's been given to us. We act out of that and, and put on display the beauty of the gospel and the way that we interact with people inside the church and the way we show hospitality to those outside the church. So that's the second one. Here's the third one. Look at verse three. Again, it feels like we're all over the place. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. So the third thing here is that we should show compassion for the hurting. Compassion for the hurting. When verse three says, remember those in prison, it's not talking about what we would think of as the general prison population. Now, um, that is good ministry, right? And there are several folks, even in the room now, who are actively involved in that time of ministry, both men and women, so if you feel called to that, um, then I would come find me after. I'd love to point you in the right direction. But 
This is talking about something different. It, it, it reminds me of chapter 10, verse 34. This will be on the screen. He says something similar. He said, you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. And in chapter 10, the, the context here, which is the same in chapter 13, is people who have been thrown in jail because of their faith in Christ. People who are in prison, not just general prison population, uh, but people who are there because of their faith in Christ. And he says, remember those in prison and remember those mistreated. And the word remember here is not just like, hey, don't forget about it. Like, make sure that you give an announcement at your next Sunday gathering. Don't forget, Buddy and Becky are in jail. Like, that's, if your name's Buddy or Becky, sorry. Like, it just came to mind, right? That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, don't forget to even pray for them, right? He says, remember them as like you were there with them. That's different, right? It's, it's twofold. Remember them while you were there with them. And then at the end of verse three, look there. He says, since you also are in the body. Remember when, like in chapter 10, you, you knew where they were and you had compassion on them and you were moved by their circumstances to act to the point where you were even willing to let your stuff be plundered. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Remember that? that that's what he's saying. You had this compassion on them and it's twofold. He says, because it could easily be you because you're in the body. Um, and and we're, we're, we're part of the same body. So if the shoulder's hurting or the knee's hurting, it's not like the rest of the body's fine, that it works together. And, and what he's saying here is one of the things that should be present in the lives of Christians is that when we see others hurting, that we should be moved with compassion and then we should act. That's the fourth thing. Well, that's the third thing. Compassion for those who are hurting. Here's the fourth one. He says, verse four, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Fourth thing that we should be true about us if we're saying, yes, that's who Jesus is, is that there should be faithfulness in our marriage or faithfulness in our singleness. He says in verse four, let marriage be held in honor among all. You know what the word all means? All. It means everyone whether you're married or not. And that's why he uses these two words at the end of verse four. He uses the words sexually immoral and adulterous. And I'll do my best to keep this as G-rated as possible, but the word that's translated here, sexually immoral, it's a word that means any sexual act that takes place outside of the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. That's sexually immoral. The word adulterous is any of those acts that's performed by someone who is married, only the things they're doing isn't with the person they're married to. I think you know what I mean. Um, and the author of Hebrews addresses both groups, and he says one of the things that should be present in the lives of followers of Jesus is that marriage is to be held in honor among all, which means if you're married, you honor marriage by being faithful in it. And if you're single, you honor marriage by refusing to participate in what God said should only exist within the boundaries of covenant marriage. And the reason why is not because God doesn't want you to have any fun or because he's out to get you. It's because in his infinite sovereignty and his love for you, God actually knows what is best for you. He does. And marriage is to be held in honor among all Christians because Ephesians 5 says there's this connection between earthly marriages and the way that wives and husbands love each other that, that can somehow give us a glimpse of the way that Jesus Christ loves and pursues his bride, the church. And so God has given us, uh, made a covenant with us. He has given us his I do in the person and work of Jesus for better or worse, every single day, God has given us his I do. He has put his 
yes in. He has promised, we'll see here in a second, to never leave us or forsake us, which shows us that marriage is not what the culture wants us to believe. It's not just gonna bring you down or drag you down or prevent you from being able to have the freedom of doing the things that we wanna do in life. It means that marriage is worth fighting for, it's worth contending for. And so listen to me, if you are married, then you fight and contend for the type of faithfulness to your spouse that can point people somehow by, by God and the power of his spirit. We fight for and contend for faithfulness to our spouse that shows people that Jesus will never leave them and forsake them. That's what I wanna be. I wanna love my wife so fiercely and ferociously that people don't say, hey, good for her. They go, man, how good is God? This is what he's inviting us into. If you're single, you fight and contend for the type of faithfulness in your singleness that declares to the world and points people to the reality that Jesus Christ is our only hope. Our only hope. Look at verse five. He says this, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Here's the fifth thing that should be present in the lives of Christians, contentment with what we have. More specifically, he's talking about freedom from the love of money. If you've been around church for a while, you maybe have heard this text or another one like it preached and done so poorly. Because oftentimes what will happen here is that we use a passage like this to make people who have money feel guilty for it. And if you notice here, money is not sin. What is? The love of it. The love of money. And church, we, we have an enemy. It's not money. We have an enemy, and one of his primary tactics to sideline us from the work that God wants to do in and through our lives and to rob from us the joy that Jesus died to give us, one of the primary tactics that he uses in order to do that in our lives is to consistently present us with all the evidence of the things that we don't have in life. To cultivate in us, rather than hearts of gratitude like we saw at the end of verse 12, hearts of grumbling. If God really loved me, then he would give me this, or why would he give that person this when I'm doing this, and there's just a lot of stuff happens. He consistently presents us with the evidence of what we don't have rather than what we do have in Christ. We talked about this last week. The way he does this is to get us to believe my life would be what I always wanted to be if I could just have blank. And that fill in the blank is different for each of us, but we think that our lives would be what we want them to be if we could just have fill in the blank, right? We spend our lives chasing the next thing always, and then you get it, and what happens? You need something else. And, and the reason why that doesn't work is my guess is for many of us, if not most of us, you have right now what you thought would, would satisfy you two years ago, three years ago, five years ago. If I could only have that thing, and guess what? You have it now, where are you? Jesus is our only hope. He is the only one who can satisfy us. The opposite of that kind of life of chasing, filling the next blank is, is what the Bible calls contentment. It's what Paul says in Philippians chapter four. Listen to this on the screen. He says, I'm not speaking of being in need because I've learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then he says this, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Contrary to what most people believe, this text is not about winning football games, right? It's about embracing the reality that, that more of what you already have is not what's missing in your life. More or a different version of what you already have is not what's missing in your life. What's missing for many of us is finally loosening our grip to the things of this world so that we can cling all the more to Jesus. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ. He's the secret to contentment. And then the author of Hebrews quotes Joshua 1 
We're going to read it here in a second. Something that God says to Joshua as he's instructing him to lead the people of Israel into the promised land. He says this, look with me, verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Here's what he says. For he, God, has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is his answer of how to be free from the love of money. And it's not getting more of it. Being free from the love of money is not getting more of it. It's realizing that if God has promised me that he will never leave me or forsake me, then we don't have to spend our lives chasing the false security that can be purchased. And we can rest in the security that's been given to us by the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. So again, after 12 chapters of Jesus is better, we get these five massive categories. Again, they could each be their own sermon. They each could be their own sermon series. These five things that he says, these things should be true in your life if you are a follower of Jesus. That there should be love for the church, hospitality to strangers, compassion for the hurting, faithfulness in your marriage or your singleness, and contentment with what you have. And honestly, all five of these are opposite of what naturally comes out of us. Apart from the work of the Spirit of God in your life, all five of these things are opposite, right? So I want to read something I wrote for you. I just took a stab to basically write the opposite of Hebrews 13, 1 to 5. I want you to listen to it, and then even just considering for your own right, does Hebrews 13, 1 to 5 describe my life, or does this? He's, what if it said this? Let love of self continue. Completely neglect all the people around you, especially those who are not like you. Forget about the pain of others. It's probably their fault that they're in the situation they're in. Besides, it's every man for himself. Honor marriage and sexual purity as long as that's what makes you happy, because after all, that's what God wants for you. And you keep your life full of the love of money because money is the key to the life that you've always wanted. The argument in the book of Hebrews is that if we say yes to the first question that Jesus is who the Bible says he is, then what should be produced in our lives by the power of the Spirit is these five things, not the ones I just read. And so are you growing in these five things or are you drifting from them? And again, we come back to those two questions. Do you believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is? And if your answer is yes, then the only appropriate response is to submit your life to follow him. And these five categories he gives us, they're not just a shotgun approach because he's running out of time, like my sermon last week, right? It's like if you've ever been to Costco or Sam's, and you might go in there with a list or some things you want, but there's nothing that connects them on the list, right? You got to get some bread, um, and you're going you're gonna to get some batteries, and then you're going to go check out the price for car tires, and then while you're there, you might as well see how much a new 60-inch costs, and then on the way out, there's always coolers, and I don't know about you, but I'm always tempted by another cooler. You're like, I need that, you know? <laughs> And so there's nothing that connects the list, okay? That's not what this is. These five things seem like they're all over the place, but, but instead of a, a list to Sam's or Costco, these five things are connected. It's more like a recipe. These are the ingredients of what should be true about us if we're going to follow after Jesus. If we say, yes, I believe that you are King of kings and Lord of lords, that you have done for me what the Bible says that I could never do for myself, that you've given your life in my place so that I can be reconciled to God the Father. Now I'm invited to draw near to him. And as I do that, I'm given this new identity, not because of who I am, but because of who Christ is. And I'm now a son and a daughter of God. And if I'm a son and daughter of God, then I'm a brother and sister with the family of faith. And church, the, the invitation for us 
it, to live this way is not, hey, do this or else. It's do this because God has invited you in to live your life in such a way that it puts the beauty of the gospel on display, that people get to see that. So are we growing in these categories or are we drifting from them? Are we drifting from them? Um, I think about our church and I think it's easy for us to look around and to go, man, we're doing something. And praise God that people are here, three services are full and all that kind of stuff. I'm not saying against that, but, but I think, church, I think there's a way for us to fail at the Christian life and, and, and for the whole time for it to look like success. And here's what I mean, that our, our seats will be full, but our hearts will be empty the presence of God. That's a fail. That our budget would be growing continually, and yet our Christ-likeness would not. And church, I'm just here to tell you I'm not interested in that. And neither, is our, neither are our elders, neither are our staff. We, I would rather us fail going as hard as we can at this, at pursuing what Hebrews 12 calls the unshakable kingdom. Living our lives, putting the beauty of the gospel on display, I would rather us fail going after that than build something that one day is ultimately gonna crumble when Jesus returns. He's invited us in, given us these categories to say, hey, this is what it looks like. So are you growing in these areas or are you drifting from them? And just remember this, these things that we do, we don't do them to earn God's love. It's not love people in the church and show hospitality to strangers and compassion for people who are hurting and be faithful in your marriage because if you don't, then Jesus is gonna reject you. No, he's already given us the promise. He has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He's given us his I do in the person and work of Jesus and so as a response to the new identity that we've been given in Christ, we live out Christian activity. That's what he's invited us into. This is the point of Hebrews 13, one to six, this is what it looks like to be the family of faith. So are you growing in them or are you drifting from them? Let me pray for us and then we're gonna respond. Father, I'm thankful for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for the truth and the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that it's not up to us to earn our way into right standing with you, but rather you have given it to us in the personal work of Jesus. I pray for our church. I pray, God, that we would we would not be those who pursues, pursue worldly success, God, but we would pursue Christ-likeness, that we would put the beauty of the gospel on display, that you would help us, that you would cultivate these things in us by the power of your spirit. We need your help. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.